Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Battlefield Next. My name is Major Jason Coffey. Before we get started with this episode, let's do some housekeeping. First, the views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today's episode is an interview with Commander Jonathan Shoemate and Major Valaria Brooks from the U.S. Army JAG Corps Center for Law and Military Operations, also known as CLAMO, a director of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center in Charlottesville, Virginia. Commander Shoemate is currently assigned as a Coast Guard Advanced Operational Law Studies Fellow. Major Brooks works as the Director of Domestic Operations and National Guard Bureau Liaison, where she is responsible for teaching Defense Support of Civil Authorities, DISCA, at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, as well as providing support for the DISCA mission for the 54 states and territories of the National Guard. On today's episode, Major Wellemeyer, Commander Shoemate, and Major Brooks discuss CLAMO's role and function, the DISCA process, and some of the legal issues the Army faces during the COVID-19 pandemic. Without further ado, let's move to the episode. On today's podcast, I have Major Valaria Brooks and Commander Jonathan Shoemate from the Army JAG Corps' CLAMO office. Major Brooks, if you could start us off here today and just explain what CLAMO does for the Army JAG Corps. Sure, I'd be happy to. I'm going to start off with just kind of talking a little bit about our mission statement. So CLAMO, the Center for Law and Military Operations, it was founded in 1988 at the direction of the Secretary of Army, and it's a joint interagency and multinational organization and we are responsible for collecting and synthesizing data related to legal issues arising in military operations. We also manage a central repository of information relating to issues, and we also disseminate resources addressing these issues in order to facilitate the development of doctrine, organization, training, material, leadership, personnel, and facilities as these areas affect the military legal community. Really what that means, and, and Commander Shumate kind of nailed it earlier this week when we were kind of talking about what CLAMO does. It's like we are the place that you go to to not recreate the wheel. If there is an AAR out there or if we've done some type of mission or we've done some type of operation and we have the resources for it, CLAMO is kind of the repository to help that operational law attorney with resources available to help them facilitate them with their mission. It's basically kind of the best way to describe what we do. We help attorneys and JAGs that are getting ready to deploy to some type of mission, or in this case, like what we're doing now with a whole bunch of domestic operational law stuff um, and DISCA missions. And we also help attorneys that are going, getting ready to go to the combat training centers and help them with AARs and lessons learned about all of those missions that we have helped get either AARs from or lessons learned or best practices from. Major Brooks, one of the things you mentioned was DISCA, and I think that's something that maybe people are are currently familiar with given the the COVID-19 pandemic that we are currently uh, working through as a country and a global community. Could you talk just briefly about some of the issues that you've seen the field come to you related to the current pandemic? I think it's important to kind of talk about when we're talking about DISCA, just to kind of go back and just explain what that is. And DISCA is the Defense Support of Civil Authority. So how we as a Department of Defense help civil authorities respond to things like 
COVID-19 or hurricanes or natural disasters or other type of either man-made or natural disasters where the civil authorities, as in the states and local individuals, are get overwhelmed and they need Department of Defense help. So that is really what we are referring to when we say DISCA. And that is how we are helping the local states, authorities, and municipalities respond to their COVID mission. Commander Shoemaker, I want to now ask you a question related to DISCA. Could you maybe take our listeners through a hypothetical that, that might be instructive on understanding the DISCA process? Because this is a, an area of the law that you know, most judge advocates may not be familiar with, just explaining the process and how it should work. Yeah, JJ, I'd be happy to. Thanks for uh, having us talk about uh, these issues and spreading this information out to the field. So talking about DISCA, I, I spoke talking to my wife the other day and she, uh, I said, hey, I'm going to do this uh, DISCA uh, podcast. And she said, DISCA, what's DISCO? And she started doing some John Travolta moves on the, uh, on the kitchen uh, dance floor. So yeah, there's a lot of confusion that people have out there. And, and Valeria kind of explained that in the the process is really important because we are um, a federalist constitutional system where we both have a federal sovereign and a state, several state sovereigns, as well as U.S. territories out there that have their own uh, political systems. We, we have to kind of have this national approach to how we respond to crises. The way that we do that through direction of the president is uh, through the national response framework. So Hurricane Katrina really brought out a lot of it showed the need for a national kind of framework and, and a coordinated response when these major disasters and defense support incidents take place. So the process uh, that's been determined is that there's a tiered approach to every type of incident. And that tiered approach is that you'll have a local incident, whether it's a fire, hurricane, domestic terrorist incident, cyber attack, whatever it may be. And if the locals in that city or that, that county are overwhelmed and are unable to provide support to meet that need, then the state will come in. That's the next level of, of support in that tier. Then the state and the governor will, will come in and provide you know, additional resources to that area. And then finally, if the state is overwhelmed, they'll reach out to other states through emergency management assistance compacts. And then if they're overwhelmed, then the third tier kicks in, which is the federal government. So we are part of that as the Department of Defense and Coast Guard, so Department of Homeland Security. And we provide that assistance, that federal assistance through the Defense Support of Civil Authorities process. Because of that tiered approach, it's really important that commanders recognize and, and remember that the whole point of this concept is we respect the right and the duty of local citizens and local states to manage their own disasters and their own problems, to enforce the laws and to keep people healthy and safe. That's not a federal responsibility, that is a state responsibility. And so because of the constitution and our international framework, we respect that. Commanders always have to remember we're in a supporting role when it comes to DISC emissions. But what happens, what happens in a, in a disaster, what happens in reality is you get local mayors, city councilmen, various people throughout the town government, fire chiefs, police chiefs, they know they have personal relationships with the DOD installations and the DOD commanders in that area. And because they, you know, go and hang out together, they see each other at meetings, at local events, then they um, get requests that they'll get a phone call directly from that local mayor, which says, hey, I need some help. So for example, if the mayor of Charlottesville were to reach out to, to General Berger at the Army JAG school, 
during you know COVID nineteen and say, hey, we we need help with you know handing out all of these medical supplies. Let's say you know the pandemic explodes and all of Charlottesville is infected and people are coughing and and having difficulties laying in beds, you know, suffering all throughout the city. And so he's, well, we need help handing out medical supplies. Well, General Berger shouldn't just say, well, hey, I've got a bunch of military people, uh, military lawyers, and, you know, they're under my command. I can go, let's just send them out. He doesn't want to do that and just immediately deploy forces because of that national framework and our respect for the local states in managing those, those conditions. And so the process that's set up is a process that's coordinated by FEMA. FEMA is usually the, the lead agency, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is usually the lead agency for domestic incidents. So the request would go to like General Berger, and then he would send that request over to the state coordinating officer. So there's every state has one. They're appointed by the governor, and they work together with the defense coordinating officer, which is the military's, the DOD's representative at all of the, there's a representative that covers all of the uh, 10 FEMA regions, and that representative works with the state coordinating officer and works with the federal coordinating officer who's appointed if emergency declaration has been made by the president. And those requests go through that process to a joint field office and they get staffed and the DCO determines and identifies and validates that request and sends it, sends it up the chain of command. So that local request shouldn't be immediately responded to by the installation commander. Instead, it should be sent, sent to that state coordinating officer who will then work with the federal coordinating officer and the defense coordinating officer. And then the DCO will validate that and send it to NORTHCOM. The reason he has to do that is the Secretary of Defense has withheld authority and said, no DOD forces should ever do a discommission unless I say so, is what the SECDEF has said. And the SECDEF has delegated through a DISC XORD down to NORTHCOM and SOUTHCOM because they're the ones who deal with domestic incidents, right? None of the other COCOMs uh, deal with that, at least the geographic ones don't. So NORTHCOM, 90% of all the, mission or all the mission assignment requests are requests for assistance from civil authorities. All of those requests, 90% of them, NORTHCOM uh, usually approves them. But there are certain ones that still have to go up even higher through the joint staff to the SECDEF and get approved. And that's usually like a three to five day process. If it's not one of those lower ones that the NORTHCOM can approve, it takes a few days. And so commanders have to remember, like, this is a more slow rolling, slow moving process, at least initially once you get it started up, once, once all the players are in place, then it can move a little bit quicker. But from the time the state requests resources to the time they actually start showing up and helping with like a disaster, especially with like major hurricanes, it can take a little bit of time. And so that, that's the process. And commanders want to follow that process for two reasons. First, because there's a military justice risk, an orders violation risk. The DISCA exhort is a written order coming down from the SECDEF that says, don't do a DISCA mission unless I've approved it and delegated that authority down. And unless there's an approval, you shouldn't be doing a DISCA mission. Why? Because there's a whole host of reasons why. Because your main mission is war fighting and winning the, winning the nation's war is not, not helping out with hurricanes and earthquakes. We're there to help and that's why this process is there, but we're one small piece. We're a supporting piece. There's tons of other federal agencies that are out there that are designed to help in these situations. But DOD has the most money of all the federal agencies and it's got a lot of big equipment that is super helpful, especially in domestic incidents and usually natural disasters. So that's the first uh, reason. You don't want to run into a military justice violation. Uh, the second one is fiscally, 
you don't want to want to run into a fiscal problem. Those commanders are going to be spending their own funds if they send out those individuals, those vet equipment, those assets, and they're not going to have those funds later if there's a wartime need. And also, Congress has directed them to spend those funds on war fighting, not on DISCA, unless the president or SecDef have authorized them through this FEMA mission process, mission assignment process, to get those requests validated and uh, and coordinated. And that and Congress has recognized that authority in this process through the Stafford Act. And that's what the president operates under when, when we have these defense support of civil authority missions as well. And so those are kind of two key reasons that help us understand the process in, in helping understand why General Berger wouldn't want to send a bunch of JAGs out handing out medical supplies in, in Charlottesville until he's gotten that staffed through the, the defense coordinating officer. And what's nice about that staffing process is that the DCO sees all of the requests at the same time that are coming in and is able to work with the state coordinating officer and figure out where exactly they really want these DOD resources. Because just because the mayor of Charlottesville wants a bunch of DOD assets locally doesn't mean the mayor of Richmond may have priority here in Virginia. And that state coordinating officer on behalf of the governor is tracking all of that in the state. And so that process helps send resources where they need to go and the state is the one who's making that determination, not the DOD. We're responding in support of the state doing that. And without that process, in the past, we were just having a bunch of military commanders sending their assets all over the place. And that, ne- that wasn't necessarily the best place for those units, those personnel, those supplies to be. That's kind of an overview of that, that process. Hopefully that helps. Major Brooks, I want to take the hypothetical a little bit further. Let's say that General Berger has been some of his, the soldiers under his command have been uh, approved for a use under a, a, fee, a proper FEMA mission assignment. Is he the one that's going to be in charge of them, or is there another commander that's going to be uh, in charge of, of those particular soldiers? I think we have to take a little step back before we kind of jump into that part, because, and, and just talk about how we're responding. Like, if General Berger is using all Title X forces and it's a mission assignment for him, then more than likely, probably. But most of the time when we're responding to a DISCA-type mission, you're going to have Title X forces, Title 32, and state active duty forces from the National Guard. Because the National Guard, DISCA, and the things that they do is kind of how they usually respond without it becoming necessarily a Title X type mission. So you're always having National Guard in either a state active duty or a Title 32 respond to any type of like natural disasters when we have those ice storms and hurricanes and things like that. And when it becomes these massive responses and we then have Title X forces come in, we then need to have what we call a dual status commander in play. And like that has been, and, and we found out that the dual status commander works very well. And we found it out after Katrina. We learned a lot of great things from Katrina because with a dual status commander, it's going to give us a unity of effort and a common operating picture. So you're going to have a dual status commander that is going to be in charge of the Title 10 forces. And that same individual is also going to be entitled in charge of the Title 32 forces. So the Title 32 and state active duty forces. That is the only individual who's receiving orders from the SECDEF or the federal side, president side, on the Title X side. And then he's also, he or she is also the only person that's then receiving orders from either the governor or a TAG for the adjutant generals for the states for the National Guard. 
the reason that is, the reason that we have that dual status commander is, like I said, for us to have that unity of effort. And that individual who's a dual status commander is usually, and it's usually in common practice at this point in time, for it to be a National Guard person, because it kind of goes back to what Commander Shoemate was talking about. When you have all of those individuals in a joint field office and you're working with those relationships, that individual who is that their state coordinating officer or the DCO or, or the federal coordinating officer, they've already probably had that relationship established with the individual that's going to be a dual status commander. So that individual is then able to work that process and work the relationships to know what they are, the missions that they need to respond to and, and what the goal is. They also know what resources that state has and they're also in charge of making sure that the dual status commander is making sure that they're staying in the left and right limits of the state law. So every state, obviously their state law is different. So each state is going to have their own dual status commander because that individual is going to need to be aware of what the state laws are with the response of the mission that they're going to do. So with all that being said, it's important that that person has some type of a relationship with the state that they're the dual status commander with. I want to follow up on on what you just said about the dual status commander. So we're recording this this podcast on April 15, 2020. Are there any states right now that have appointed dual status commanders are under the current pandemic? Currently, 38 states have approved have been approved to have dual status commanders. They put in the paperwork and it has to be the governor's has to sign off on it and SECDEF has to sign off on it and it's approved that way. But so we have 38 states who have been approved for a dual status commander, but currently only seven states are operating with a dual status command, which means that they have Title 32 and state active duty and Title 10 forces all in their AO. So we have seven states actively with a dual status commander currently on orders. In one of our discussions before this particular recording, you mentioned a term called a mega DSC or a mega dual status commander. Could you talk a little bit about what that concept is and, and maybe why it would or would not work under the current situation? When everything was getting, it's a great question, when everything was kind of getting spun up, when you have 54 states and territories all responding to COVID-19, individuals were thinking that maybe the best way to do it is to have a mega dual status commander, to have that whole unity of effort and common operating picture. But the problem with that, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, is when we're talking about a dual status commander, they need to have a relationship with the state that they're commanding in. And when we did further research into it, we realized that you couldn't have a mega dual status commander because you're going to have different state laws that are going to apply. And so it was decided that we would just keep it as the customary practice that each state would have their own dual status commander so that they will be able to, one, take advantage of the relationships that they already have within that state, and two, stay within their left and right limits of the state law that they're going to be responsible with operating in when they are commanding those Title 10, Title 32, and state active duty forces. I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about the National Guard. I know that at Clamo, one of the things in your portfolio is National Guard and, and the legal issues uh, that come up. Could you talk a little bit about how the National Guard is currently being utilized under the current pandemic and maybe highlight some of the, the legal issues uh, worth mentioning to the field? 
I think it's important to know kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, that's a great question. The National Guard is usually responding to some form of a domestic response. It's kind of in our portfolio. And when I say our, I'm a member of the National Guard. I'm a member of the Kansas National Guard, but I'm also part of National Guard Bureau. So it's what we do domestically as part of our mission. So some of the things that when we, when Commander Shoemake was going through the whole DISCA process, he had mentioned briefly EMACs, which is the Emergency Management Assistance Compacts. And usually when we have these types of missions, so for instance, if we have a hurricane or something like that, states will call on other states and have them help them respond to some to an event. So we'll have North Carolina reach out to Kansas for something for some type of response to a hurricane. One of the issues that we came across when we were doing this COVID-19 is everyone is being affected. So we're having across the 54 states and territories, everyone is being affected. So that whole EMAC that we at once kind of relied on to help at least the state response wasn't there. So we quickly exhausted our resources and needed to go to the federal government. We then had to switch from what the Guard, National Guard calls a state active duty status to um, we then had to ask, reach out for assistance to kind of go into a Title 32 or a federally funded but state controlled status because the states didn't have a budget to respond to this type of a response that's going to last for an unknown period of time across the 54 states and territories. That was something that we just kind of had to work through the process of how do we get federal funding to be able to put our service members on some type of a Title 32 order, switch them from state active duty so that we can have this mission do like a steady state mission and be able to respond for the long haul without possibly bankrupting a state for something for a incident that they could not foresee coming like that. We've also had to kind of work through the difference between when we're working with, especially when we're doing things where we have the Title 10 forces and Title 32 forces and state active duty forces all together, who is going to be able to do what mission? Because Title 32 and state active duty has more flexibility when it comes to like law enforcement type missions and security type missions because the posse comitatus does not apply to us in our Title 32 state active duty status because we're under control of the governor and it will then rely back on what our state law is telling us that we can do. So that's something else that we kind of had to work through. And we're still working through some of those issues as we go throughout this process, this response. And I can see that we're, we're running close on time. So I just want to maybe, maybe end this with one final question. Uh, Major Brooks, in your opinion, based on what you've seen, maybe some of the AARs you read while being at Clamo, how has the current pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, differed from some of the larger uh, humanitarian crises we've seen in the past, such as a, a Katrina or something of that nature? I think some of the things that we're dealing with, just for the fact that we haven't had to deal with the pandemic. When we were talking about earlier, what are some of the things that Clamo is going to be able to do? Like we know that once this is finally winds down that we will be working on a pandemic handbook, an AAR on the lessons learned about some of the things that we can and cannot do. Kind of like when we were discussing whole, the whole process of doing a mega dual status commander and what the left, 
and right limits are of the dual status commander. And it, what Commander Shumate was kind of talking about what the process was or is for us to get a valid mission assignment. And with the Department of Defense, we like to be forward leaning in the foxhole, but when it comes to things like DISCA, we have to remember that we are in a support function and that we have to wait until we are asked for assistance, that the request for assistance is given to us and we have a valid mission assignment before we kind of go out the door and then kind of the left and right limits of those mission assignments so that we can stay within our lane and fiscal responsibilities as well as some of the legal responsibilities outside of that. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for your time here today. This is it for today's episode of the Battlefield Next podcast. Until next time, thank you. That's it for the episode. For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JAGFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible.